0: And let me invite you to turn in the scriptures to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're using our Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1177 of the Pew Bible. 1177, we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Today we are returning to our study of the pastoral epistles. Now, the pastoral epistles are First and 2 Timothy and the book of Titus, so those three, they are called the pastorals because they were written by Paul to two men who, although they might have not used officially the title pastor, were in fact functioning as pastors, or what we would call today a pastor. And this makes these letters rather unique, doesn't it? Almost all the other letters of Paul are written to churches to the whole congregation, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the church at Thessalonica, but these letters were written by the apostle to individual men called to ministry. Now, as we'll see in our study, Paul expected that these letters would be seen by the whole congregation. They were written in a very official style. If nothing else, uh, the letters would have authorized Timothy and Titus to keep, to pursue, to advance uh, Paul's already uh, foundational ministry. So they were meant to be seen by all. But however, despite that fact, they remain very personal and very instructive. The purpose of these pastoral letters has been clearly seen by the church really from the beginning. In fact, in 170 AD, so just about 70 years after the death of the last apostle, the Moratorian Canon, one of the earliest lists we have of the New Testament books, uh, describes the pastorals this way, quote, To Titus 1 and to Timothy 2 books, written out of goodwill and love, and are held sacred to the glory of the universal church, For the ordering of church discipline. For the ordering of church discipline. So these are not books reserved just for pastors and elders, but for the life of the church, church discipline or church order. In fact, the book of 1 Timothy uh, makes this point explicitly. Paul tells Timothy exactly why he is writing this letter. Uh, Some New Testament books don't have a purpose statement. First Timothy does, and everyone agrees on it. It's from First Timothy chapter three. Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What's at stake here, then, is not just the sort of finer points of pastoral practice, but rather the life of the church, literally, says Paul, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, you may be saying to yourself, uh, that sounds like a great story, but why are we taking it up right now as a congregation You may even wonder or be tempted to wonder, isn't there more urgent matters that demand our attention? What about human sexuality or the culture war on Christianity or the horror of wars in Ukraine and elsewhere? And all of those, of course, all of those are worthy topics, timely topics. But I think this topic is just as urgent. The evangelical Bible-believing church in the United States of America is in a massive crisis. You may not feel that here in our little sanctuary, but it is happening. Record numbers of young people are leaving the church or deconverting or deconstructing their faith, and record numbers of pastors, theologians, teachers are resigning or being fired in disgrace by their congregations. Many are deconverting, Many are deconstructing their former faith. And sadly, sadly, tragically, and Jesus warned us about this, many of these same people are not content simply to deny the faith. Instead, they remain in our churches, our seminaries, and our colleges, seeking to bring others into their perverted way of thinking, unwilling to give up their status as teacher or influencer. For these reasons, and many, many more I could name, we need to hear the pastorals as they, the pastorals, answer the only question that really matters on the topic of the church. What does Jesus, what does Jesus want his church to look like? Please stand, and we'll begin to answer that question. The reading of Christ's word I'm going to read all of chapter 1, 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality and slavers liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy jesus christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen this charge this command i entrust to you timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's holy word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, it is our desire this morning once again to place ourselves under the authority, the guidance, direction, and correction of your most holy word. We acknowledge that without this word and without obedience to it, there is no gospel and there is no good news. And we confess this morning as well, Father, that every man and woman in the church who departs from this gospel And speaks against it is contrary to the person and work of Jesus Christ and will not be blessed in this life or in the life to come. And so knowing these things and coming to you in holy reverence, we pray now that you would open your word to us and that you would make us as rebels conformable to it. Change and direct us, we pray. Work upon us, we ask. And all this we ask, Father, in the name and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, believe it or not, it has been eight months since our last sermon on First Timothy. Previously, I gave, I think to my count, nine sermons on chapter 1 of First Timothy. And I had just done two sermons on chapter two. Now that might seem like a lot, nine sermons on one chapter, and I can tell you for me that is a lot. I don't usually do nine sermons on one chapter, but I think if you go back and you listen to that series of sermons, I think you'll agree that we needed nine sermons. This is an incredibly rich chapter, and we just needed to take our time, Uh, but don't worry. My goal for today is not to go through all nine sermons again, instead I want to focus our attention on just the first few verses of this chapter, which set the tone for the letter and introduce us to the two main characters here, Paul and, of course, Timothy. At first glance, the opening words of 1 Timothy may seem unremarkable, conventional even. And it's true. Uh, Paul here follows the basic sort of ancient stock formula, uh, sort of what someone would expect to hear back in those days. Uh, Letters from this period often begin in just this way. You would name yourself. You would name the sender. uh, You would name the recipient, who you were hoping would read it, who you're writing to. And then you'd often add a greeting or a blessing. So if I were writing you in this style, I might write Matthew Fisher... Uh, to Grace Presbyterian Church, greetings, and then I would speak to you. So the basic structure of these first two verses is traditional, it's pretty normal, and what someone would expect back then. However, as Paul does with his other letters as well, there's more going on. He takes that basic structure and he deepens it. Paul often, in his introductions to his letters, he gives hints to the letter's agenda, the letter's message. For example, in his letter to the Philippians, he describes, he opens up by describing himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And he goes on then immediately to call on them to serve each other, to empty themselves of pride and self-obsession. In the letter to the Galatians, a letter in which he's going to push them really hard about their false theology, Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle, directly chosen by God and not by man. And the same is true in Romans, which I'm sure we'll hear this evening. In both cases, he begins by establishing his calling. So Paul alters his signature, his opening, if you will, to the letter, to fit the argument or the tone that he is about to set. We see those same kind of hints here in our opening verses. Already, right at the start, Paul is setting the stage for all that he has to say. As one author puts it, Paul here, in these opening verses, is aiming the letter, as if to say, here's where I'm going to go. So notice with me three elements that make up this opening, and really, I think, the rich theology we can discover, even in Paul's opening words. We see, first of all, how Paul identifies himself. He's very thoughtful in how he does that. And then second, how he identifies Timothy, what he says about the recipient. And lastly, hear how Paul pours out on Timothy and the church, really, an apostolic benediction, a blessing. So Look at those things with me. So first of all, notice how he identifies himself, who the letter is from. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now that's a very formal beginning, isn't it? Uh, Remember, these two men, Paul and Timothy, are very close. Uh, Timothy sees Paul as his spiritual dad, his spiritual father, They've traveled widely together. They've, they've lived together. So why is Paul beginning this letter to his spiritual son with such a formal statement of his authority? And what does this statement really mean? Uh, surely Timothy does not need to be reminded or convinced that Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He, he knows that. I think what we're going to see in our study is that though this letter was written to a dear friend, a spiritual son, it is not just personal. It's not just personal, and it certainly is not casual. Paul is not just reminding Timothy to bring a casserole for next Sunday. Rather, this is a very official letter, and it was certainly meant to be read by others. It would have been something that Timothy shared with the church at Ephesus where he was pastoring. It authorized, it authorized his ministry and his ordination to that ministry. It would have been a great encouragement to him as he dealt with false teaching in the church. And so Paul wants to set out at the beginning the unique authority he possessed to direct and establish the church. But what does that mean? Why does Paul call himself an apostle? The word simply means someone who is sent. But in the New Testament, it came to represent a group of men who were personally called into ministry by Jesus himself and were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. The book of Acts, for example, begins with the disciples choosing a 12th apostle To take the place of Judas. They recognize that the person they choose, the man they choose, must be someone who saw the risen Christ. And so Acts 1.26 says, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, was the thirteenth apostle. And quite a surprise. You probably know that history, how Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and called Paul into ministry. Later on in his letter to the Galatians, Paul will explain that his call, his calling to ministry did not emerge from Peter or from John. He goes into that. He respected their authority, but he was not ordained by Peter or John. He did go to them at one point, and they recognized his call. But Paul was directly commissioned, ordained, and called by the risen Christ himself. Galatians 1, 11 through 12. For I would have you know, brothers, writes Paul, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul can go on to say to the Corinthians in chapter 9 of that letter, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you, the church, my workmanship? The office of apostle is unique and non-repeatable. The apostles and their writings are the foundation on which Jesus builds his church. Paul said it himself in 1 Corinthians 12. God has appointed, he writes, in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues." Even those New Testament books that we have that were not directly written by an apostle, like, say, the Gospel of Mark, are written by their spiritual sons or secretaries. The New Testament is written under and is apostolic authority. Paul makes this so clear in Ephesians 2, verse 20. There he describes the church, and listen to what he says. He says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in numerous other passages, he defends and he lays out his unique apostleship. Well, here's the point. Here's the point. Paul is starting the letter this way, such a formal beginning, such a formal opening, because Timothy needs to be reminded that he is Paul's representative and that the authority of Jesus is behind his mission. Paul is Jesus's apostle, directly sent by Jesus to start the Gentile church. And Timothy is to be an apostle of Paul, as it were, a man ordained to continue that foundational work. Therefore, as we'll see in coming weeks, Timothy is to be bold. He is to hold fast to the true apostolic doctrine. In verse 3, Timothy is immediately commanded to stop false teaching. Timothy does this not in his own authority, but under the authority and the blessing of Paul. Staying true to the apostles' message is critical To the message of the pastoral epistles. And listen, brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. Nothing. Staying true to Scripture is the only true authority an elder or pastor or church can ever have, even today. When Jesus conducted his earthly ministry, the Scriptures tell us that people would listen to Jesus uh, even when he was a boy even when he was a teenager, and they would marvel. They would just be mystified. They marveled at the authority with which he spoke. And that is still true today as people read Scripture. In my apologetics class, we often briefly go over the way in which the New Testament proves itself again and again to be the reliable word of God. There are tons of arguments. We have thousands of manuscripts, and we always go over a little bit of that evidence. But my favorite argument, the one that is above all others in my mind, is simply this. Every moment of growth, every transformation of a culture or a town or a family or a person for Christ, every transformation has come only when people read scripture the New Testament especially, has proved itself over and over in its power as the Word of God through the Holy Spirit to create the New Testament church. It is the scriptures, the teaching, the foundational teaching of the apostles, the apostolic word that gives purpose, form, meaning, and direction to the church, not the other way around. The church does not birth the scriptures as a product of our work together over centuries. Rather, God gives us this teaching and the church is built through it and above it. In the words of our confession, the Bible is the only rule, the only rule of faith and practice. We love the church fathers. I quote them regularly. We love the reformers. We love the Puritans. But none of these men are apostles. None of them is authorized by the risen Christ to set the foundation of the church. And so this is what it really means to be reformed. People ask me that sometimes. What is a reformed church? What are we reforming? The Reformation was a movement and is a movement constantly seeking fuller conformity to and alignment with apostolic teaching as it's found in the Bible. The Reformation was and is a movement that says back to the sources, and those sources are the authorized writings of the apostles. Paul had seen the risen Jesus more than once. He knew that with that privilege came the certainty of torture and eventually martyrdom. But he was not afraid. From the start, he said to Christians in Ephesus, Christianity, the church, if it is going to please Christ, must be apostolic. That is, it must be biblical. There is an authority then in our life together, in our worship together, and it is Christ's authority through his apostles as handed down to us in the Bible And so on many Sunday evenings, we recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one holy and apostolic church. So as we ask throughout this study the great question, what kind of church, not what kind of church do I want, or what kind of church do you want, but what kind of church does Jesus want? The first answer, an answer we'll return to again and again, is that the church Jesus has given us and the church he wants and commands is one that is apostolic, by which we mean it is a church under the authority of Scripture as it is the Scriptures, the witness, the authoritative witness to the teaching of the apostles as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that is who this letter is from. That's the authority that stands behind it. See, second of all, who it is to Who it is to. Let's talk about that for a moment. Paul is writing. He's writing in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's writing as an apostle. It's from him. Now second, notice who it is written to. Paul writes in verse 2, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. And you could translate that even, To Timothy, my authentic son. That's the language. My true heir, my legitimate son in the faith. This is a powerful statement in which Paul immediately identifies Timothy as the true successor to his ministry, the true successor to his ministry. Lystra, you may have heard that name of that city, Lystra was a city in Galatia, which was in a region we call Asia Minor. Today, you call it Turkey. Paul came there on his First missionary journey, and through his ministry in Lystra, a Jewish woman and her mother came to faith. We'll talk about these two extraordinary women later. Uh, This Jewish mother, though, had a son, and his son, her son, was named Timothy. And through the ministry of the mom and the grandmother and the ministry of Paul, Timothy came to faith in Jesus Christ. But Timothy's biological father, who was Greek not a Jew uh, never did come to faith as far as we can tell well some time passes and on his now his second missionary journey Paul passes through Lystra again and this time the church tells Paul that they have a young man in their midst in whom they see certain gifts now this church already has elders they could have just laid hands on Timothy and made him another elder alongside the others. But the church senses there's something else going on in God's plan and purpose for Timothy. And so Paul takes Timothy from that point on, and he's enrolled in sort of full time ministry and training. He works side by side with Paul throughout Paul's many journeys. And it's a wonderful ministry relationship, and that's probably the focus of Paul's words here. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say, and I think Paul confirms this here in the text, that Paul became for Timothy like a father, a spiritual dad. Some of you have had this experience. It's not that you don't love your biological dad, but when you come to Christ and your dad or your mother does not come to Christ, there's just a disconnect that's there. It's it's just true. And quite often uh, for that person... God will send into your life someone, a man, a Christian man, who will become your spiritual father. In fact, did you know this relationship was so close that Timothy helped uh, helped in writing some of the New Testament books that we have under, again, under the authority of Paul. For one example, the letter of Colossians. You may never have noticed this. The letter of Colossians begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, there's that key term, right, apostle, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And by the way, did you hear that distinction? Paul says to the church, I am writing, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of Christ, the direct command of Christ, and I'm writing you with your brother and my brother, Timothy. Paul understood himself to be an apostle, And he did not view that as something he could just hand down to his spiritual son, Timothy. He never speaks that way of Timothy. Timothy is a pastor, a brother, a faithful co-worker, a faithful witness, but never an apostle. However, Timothy played a huge part in the writing of Paul's letters and in Paul's ministry as a whole. Well, without getting into too much detail this morning, let me give you just a snapshot of Timothy's ministry. It seems that Paul would often use Timothy in what we would call today the role of pastor. What do I mean by that? Paul would enter a city. You've read the book of Acts. You've seen this play out time and time again. Paul would enter a city, and Jesus, through Paul, would establish a church in that place, usually through a mixture of teaching and miracles. But at some point, and it happens everywhere Paul goes, things get too hot for him to say, And he has to leave, or in some cases even, the Spirit would come upon Paul and compel him to leave that place and go elsewhere. For example, Paul enters Berea, where we get the word Bereans from, the city of Berea. And he has a really wonderful ministry there among the Jews. The Jews are very open in Berea to the message of Messiah. But he's chased out of town rather quickly. Paul's response to that... Uh, and at other times as well, was to send Timothy or Titus back to that place to make sure things stayed on track. Now, these churches all had local elders. He always appointed elders. You see that all through the book of Acts. They had men in the church who were called to oversee the work. However, Timothy and Titus seemed to function as elders, but with a calling, a special calling, to teach and preach continuously wherever they went. And that arrangement, if you just think about it for a moment, that arrangement makes so much sense, doesn't it? After all, Paul couldn't stay anywhere too long because his calling as an apostle was foundational. In his short lifespan, Jesus had called him to establish the whole Gentile church. Paul would start then the discipleship work he was authorized by Christ to lay the foundation, but he needed faithful men to build on that foundation. And Timothy and Titus were some of those faithful men. We can see them throughout the book of Acts carrying Paul's letters, remaining behind to teach extensively to the churches and serving Paul in various ways. In this particular letter, 1 Timothy, Paul is sent back to Ephesus, this major city, this vital city, probably a large church. He has sent him to teach and preach and stand for the truth. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus building the church, laying the foundation in that city. Ephesus was the main Roman city in Asia Minor, what we today call Turkey. And when Paul left Ephesus in Acts 20... He warned the elders there, the local elders, that the church would experience false teaching, that there would actually be elders who would rise up in the church and lead it astray. And they were to be very careful, and they were to shepherd, or literally in Greek, they were to bishop the people of God in that place because of the threat of unbelief. Unfortunately, that false teaching was running through the church, and in light of this, Paul sends them a messenger, Timothy. And for Timothy's encouragement, and to put everyone in their place in Ephesus, Paul reminds them, the beginning of the letter, this is my genuine son. The language is literally that used for someone who is an heir to a fortune, someone who is not a a fraud, a child born in wedlock, a genuine, authentic son, Paul is saying right from the start, Timothy, not these false teachers, but Timothy is the heir to my miracle-working, gospel-establishing work in Ephesus. He's my true son in the faith. Just as Paul became an apostle in verse 1 by the command of Christ Jesus, so now he presents to the church his true son in the faith and says to them, listen to him. Here's how Paul describes Timothy. In another letter in Philippians chapter 2, For I have no one like him, writes Paul, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek, the other teachers, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. It's no surprise then, is it, that Paul's last letter... Maybe his last written words are found in the book of 2nd Timothy. At the very end of his life, probably months, days, maybe even hours before execution and facing martyrdom under Nero, Paul picks up his pen and reaches out once again to his spiritual son. Paul knows, the apostle Paul knows, that the days of the apostles, the days of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection those days are coming to an end. What will the future look like? Paul knows that the future will be about faithful sons, true sons who will carry on this work. And ever since then, the pastors of the church have known that Timothy is our model. We don't have, I don't have, Pastor Trescar does not have, the foundational authority of an apostle, We're not Paul and Peter, but we are sent by the apostles to preach their words and to build on their witness to Jesus. But here's the problem. Not all pastors are true sons, are they? That's the implication of what Paul is saying, isn't it? Paul says, here is my authentic son, Timothy. Why did he need to say that? Because there were false teachers even then. Take a moment to let that sink in. Even then, even at the very beginning, when we had men like Peter and Paul doing miracles and teaching, even then false teaching was rampant. Satan was desperately trying to control the message, corrupt the message of the church. If he couldn't kill the apostles, he could come in behind them and disrupt and corrupt the churches. Listen to the warning, the dramatic warning given by Paul to the elders of this church. This is from Acts chapter 20. Paul says to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then later on to Timothy in chapter 4, Paul, again, he's prophesying in the spirit. He says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. From day one in the Garden of Eden, Satan has come into our world. You've got to understand this. Satan came into our world from day one as a false pastor. He comes with enchanting words. Go read that account. It is the the words he speaks to Eve are pastoral words, they're counsel their direction they're what you would expect from a minister he knew what he thought Eve wanted to hear and he shaped his message to fit her desires he put doubt in her mind about the trustworthiness of god's word he begins with those famous words never forget them satan says to eve as he will say to you repeatedly throughout your life has god really said has god Really said. And ever since then, his lying spirit is everywhere around us. We've watched some of our number, some from this church, fall under his pastoral ministry. If I had to pick a title for this sermon series, I think I would choose just two words. Hold fast. Hold fast. The great calling of the pastor of the elder, of the deacon, and of every Christian is not, it's not first and foremost to be an influencer, although we do long to influence people for Christ. But before any of that can happen or mean anything, the first calling is always this, hold fast to Christ. And that is who Timothy is. That is who Timothy is as we study these letters, an authentic son, because... Because he holds fast to the word of God. So, first, we see how it comes. It comes from an apostle with all that foundational authority. Second of all, we see who it comes to someone who is now filling the gap as the apostles are dying and being removed. God is calling men to go and enter into pastoral ministry, to teach extensively and regularly as the heirs of that apostolic ministry, but under it, never becoming apostles themselves, but as true sons. And God is doing this because from the Garden of Eden to this very moment, Satan is incredibly active in distorting the truth. One last thing I want you to see, because I don't want to end on a negative note. Look at the apostolic blessing. That comes, the benediction that comes in verse 2 on those who are under a true ministry. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful words. And ever since Paul wrote these words, every faithful minister, tragically, this is the first generation, our generation, is the first generation I know of in the history of the church in which pastors have stopped using these words. In many evangelical churches, you come to the end of the service or the beginning and the pastor says, have a great day. Um, Tragic. First generation in the worldwide movement of the gospel to abandon these words. But let's ignore that for a moment. Millions still do. Ever since then, ever since Paul wrote these things, Every faithful gospel minister has used these words to bless his congregation, just as I use it, to bless you. Grace, grace is, as one author put it, a one-word summary of all that Christ has done for us. Grace is a one-word summary for all that God has done for us. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Mercy is a Hebrew word or idea. It's the word hesed. Simply put, it's God's undying loyalty, God's undying loyalty to his people, especially when they're in distress. Mercy, a help to those who cannot help themselves. And then lastly, as a faithful Jew, Paul kept, and I'm so glad he did this, he kept the customary Jewish greeting and blessing, the word shalom or peace. Shalom is not a feeling of peace. Shalom is the forensic, legal reality of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably its greatest expression comes to us in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people and many movements, online, colleges, seminaries, they will try to offer you these things, grace, mercy, and peace. They'll offer you grace, but it's cheap grace. It's not the grace won by Christ at the cross. They'll offer you mercy, but we know. You see it, don't you, online? We know what the world's mercy is. They are brutal, and they exact every penny. And they'll offer you peace. But is our world at peace in any sense at all? It's a place of constant anger, violence, hatred, and vitriol. Those blessings, you see, the end of verse 2, can only be offered first by an apostle called by Christ, and then secondarily, under that authority, by a man called to gospel ministry in submission to the scriptures. 1 Timothy is all about this. It's all about real ministry. It's all about what Christ wants from his church and what it really means to follow him. And therefore, as we follow him, the receiving of this true blessing, as we abide under the teaching of the apostolic word, We receive the apostolic blessing. And let no one deceive you. It cannot be found anywhere else. You know, something extraordinary happened to you this morning on your way to church. You probably didn't think about it as it was happening, but it was happening. Uh, And it's actually deeply unsettling. In fact, I think if Paul, the Apostle Paul, had been in the car with you, Uh, He probably would have been beside himself. And no, I'm not talking about your driving, though. Some of you may need to be warned about that. But I'm talking about something remarkable, really remarkable, that you probably missed. On your way here this morning, most of you passed many churches, many houses of worship. And tragically, most of them deny the gospel. There are wonderful exceptions, of course but most of the churches in the United States of America are apostate centers of heresy, to one degree or another. We're so used to living that way, that's so normal for us, that we sort of accept it, but it's really shocking, isn't it? The largest denominations in the United States, there's one exception, but most of the largest denominations in our country deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection, and the necessity of salvation for the lost. And when we come to church every Sunday, we pass these places. Most horrifying is the reality that we just live this way, and that we've just gotten comfortable with it. It's not just, though, about the churches, is it, or the buildings you pass. This week, most of the voices you'll hear online, and you'll hear virtually, and even at work, There'll be people who are openly, in one way or another, distorting the gospel. Love is love, we hear. That is a distortion and a perversion of the gospel. Love belongs to Jesus, He defined it. And I could give hundreds of other examples. You and I are so immersed in heresy every day, it's just so common we don't even notice it anymore. We hear the arguments, we hear the theories, and we don't even realize that we're talking about them or taking them in. More horrifying, though, and I think the thing that keeps most of you up at night, and me too, is that our children are just swimming in these philosophies. I recently heard a child say, my body, my choice. And I thought to myself, what a perfectly, perfectly satanic point of view. The body doesn't belong to God. It has no meaning. It is reduced to a thing I own and I have for my own pleasure or purposes. The child, this child did not get that from a secular university. She was too young for that. She just got it from breathing, breathing in this heretical environment. And this is why This letter, 1 Timothy, demands and deserves your full attention. This is an authentic message from God through his word. It is apostolic. And in a moment of information explosion, when lies abound and are accessible more than ever before in human history, we must fight for Christ's church. And the only way the only way to fight for the church is to fight for the truth. To uphold the word of God is to fight for the church. And that is what it means to be an authentic son or an authentic daughter. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that in our day, as never before, the opportunity for satan to destroy people's minds and hearts has been advanced and that even now he uses our universities our colleges the internet books every means available to him to destroy the apostolic witness to jesus christ he is a liar he was a liar from the beginning and he is busy lying today use your word to protect your people from his deceptions and give them through your word the wisdom and grace to persevere. We thank you, Father, that Timothy was such a man, a faithful and true son. In the weeks to come, help us to listen intently to what he learned from the Apostle Paul and then to live by it and use it, Father, all to your glory and that the church might thrive even in dark times. This we pray and ask for, for the sake of Jesus, who deserves his church. Amen.